You know that something I really enjoy doing is uh, hiking. It's something that my wife and I had stumbled into. And um, then, several years go by, and my son lets us know that he's going to be in Arizona for training in the Army. And Nancy and I looked at each other and said, well, I guess we have to come see you, huh? Now, we wanted to see our son. But the truth is, there were several places we wanted to hike in Arizona. So it was just a great, great reason to take off and go there, right? So we've kind of established this kind of like a bucket list of hikes that we want to do, okay? You know, it's just something that people do. And there's several places that we want to hike. Like, there's some great, great ones right around the area. But, man, it just seems like the ones on the Internet, like in other states, like miles and miles away, just seem better. You ever notice that? It's true. What is that about the, the human being that what is right here in front of us just doesn't seem to offer the same thing that something does, you know, hundreds of miles away? I mean, cows struggle with this, you know, grass is only greener, okay? So I guess it's not that strange that we do too. So uh, it was great. I mean, we went out to uh, Sedona, Arizona, and, um, and, and we had a great time, and I'm so glad we did it. Saw some sites that were incredible. I mean, just some scenes of, of these mesas out here in the distance and, and you know, just, just the, the sun coming up in the morning up over these giant rocks. Beautiful. You know, it's funny how we are. You know, we do tend to, to kind of lean towards what we don't have and think that'll bring us something. But there's another problem that this kind of hiking dynamic illustrates. This very morning, I was riding to the office. I get up pretty early on Sunday morning. And I come over to the office and sit up here and just kind of get my mind set for the day. It's not the only day I work during the week, okay? Contrary to what some people, you guys didn't laugh. You should have laughed at that point. So I'm driving down the road on Route 11. Okay, and I need to turn right to go into the office. Right up here. I turn right. And up above this mountain right over here, I think that might be South Mountain. I don't know. I think it's over in Maryland. Is that right? Okay, good, good. The sun is coming up. And folks, it was beautiful. It was, did you see it this morning? It was beautiful. You know, all across the top of the mountain, you know, only about an inch or two from my perspective is this red layer of light. As the earth spins... And the sun there that God created sends its rays up over the horizon. It was beautiful as the light just bounced off the atmosphere. And it just, it just shot for, for hundreds of miles, it seemed, over my head. And you know, it just struck me of exactly what we're going to talk about today. And that's this idea that human beings have many problems. And one of them is that familiarity breeds contempt. You've heard that phrase, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds a disregard. Familiarity, it breeds this idea that what is right here in front of me isn't really all that. I need something else. You understand this? I mean, it's just something that we battle as people. And, you know, there's lots of examples we can use for that. I remember when we, we know we have four lovely children, right? And I remember with the first one, it was like, you know, if they're... Binky, you know what that is, that thing you stick in their mouth and it shuts them up, okay? 
Like, you know, if the wind blows against it in the wrong way, Nancy and I are both sprinting, you know, to this, like, powerful washing machine to clean the thing so we can delicately put it back in her mouth. And by the time the fourth one comes along, you're like, ah, it's just graveling dirt. Put it back in her mouth, right? You know, it just, as you can become familiar, not at all, honey, I just made that up, okay? That's not true. That's not true. You know, this familiarity, when we're familiar with something, we just take it for granted and it's no big deal. We don't even think about it anymore. We're going to see that in Scripture today. Maybe in a strange way, we're going to be in Luke chapter 17, actually chapter 18. Luke 18, go there with me. And we'll see today some truths that we need to look at again. Truths that we've seen already. We've seen them recently. And we become so familiar with them, we become so familiar with them that they don't really mean that big of a deal to us anymore. Now let me just remind you where we've been. We've been talking, we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, 17 chapters. We just wrapped up chapter 17 where Jesus is talking about His second coming. He's talking about when He comes again to set up His kingdom on earth. And and what we saw in that passage from last week was this Already not yet concept. I think I have that on a, on a slide up there. Already not yet. Yeah, the kingdom of God is already and not yet. And here's what this means. There are truths about the kingdom of God that are true today. They're true today. But they're not yet completely fulfilled in our lives. We see this when Jesus talks about His coming. I want to show you how familiar this truth is. And you let it slip right by. And the way I'm going to use, what I'm going to show you that is through Psalm 23. Put that verse up on the screen. Just have one verse from Psalm 23. You know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I lead beside still waters. Um, he leads me to the paths of righteousness. Um, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Um, Let's see. You prepare tables for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Tell me, is that already, that phrase right there, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, is that already here or not yet? That's here, baby. That's here. If you are in Christ, you are, you are experiencing eternal life. Yes. Eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ. It's knowing God and Jesus Christ whom He is sent. John 17, 3. You are experiencing eternal life now already. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But then read the next phrase. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord Forever. Hmm. Is that true? Is that true of you today? Ah, I'm getting some looks like, well, sort of, kind of, in a way. It's not yet in fruition, is it? Now, I experience an eternal life. But Jesus said in John 14 that he is going to prepare a place for us. And if he goes to prepare us, He'll take us there. So there are, there are dynamics of our relationship with Christ that are already here 
but not yet in full fruition. Let me give you another example, because I can tell maybe you're not quite sure. Let me give you one that will put the nail in the coffin. You know what? Now that I am in Christ, sin has no power over me. You know that? Sin has no power over me. Uh, the, the, The penalty for sin, gone. Jesus took it on the cross. The power of sin, gone. Jesus rose from the dead, breaking, destroying the power of sin. Sin has no penalty. Sin has no power in my life. That is already true. But, but, the presence of sin is still here. Right? If you don't believe me, I'll give you an assignment. Follow me for the rest of the day and you'll see it. Okay? You'll see it. It's already true that sin has been destroyed in my life. Crucified. But it's not yet already, it's already true, but it's not yet fulfilled. It's not yet finished in my life. Jesus is bringing that. Another, another truth that we saw last week is about the kingdom of God. Remember, here's the third example. We said that the kingdom of God has two realms. Remember this? This picture maybe will help you. Okay, this is what I did last week. Okay? We got the universal kingdom. All right? The universal kingdom. God spoke and we existed. God oversees all that there is. Jesus was able to heal disease, raise dead, create food. He is over the kingdom. But it's cursed by sin. Work is still work. People still die. People still get sick. So we have the spiritual kingdom. That was over here. Remember that? That's a kingdom of the heart. That when you put your trust in Christ, He comes and lives in you and makes you a new creature. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. That's John 3.3. 3. That's the kingdom of God. What we're looking forward to, what is not yet here, is when this kingdom and this kingdom become one. Become one. And Jesus comes to the earth. The first time Jesus came, at His first advent, the first time Jesus came, He came to establish His kingdom of the heart. The spiritual kingdom. He came to die so that there could be a kingdom of the heart. Those of us who are in Jesus are part of that kingdom. The second time He comes, He comes to establish His universal earthly kingdom where righteousness will reign. Where He will reign. Where there will be no more death and no more sorrow and no more sin. You see, this not yet, already truth is all through our understanding about the Lord. Now I want to bring one in that's a little more practical in everyday life for you. John 18.1. Let's read it. And He being Jesus, this is Luke chapter 18, and Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose hope. Heart. Now, let me just warn you. Watch out for familiarity. Watch out. It's coming down. You are on a train right now towards familiarity. And if you aren't careful, you will fall off the track and not catch what this passage is trying to instruct us about our relationship with Christ. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying... Give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, 
Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This term, beat me down, is kind of interesting. What it really means is it's a boxing term. Picture a guy against the ropes. He's getting his face beat in. That's what it really means. That's what he feels like she's doing. She's just nagging him. He's getting, she's getting on his nerves. He's got me against the ropes. and She's pounding me in the face. Shut up, woman, and leave me alone. Right? That's what he says. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily, quickly. It'll happen in a snap, in a hurry. It'll happen real quick when he brings justice. Nevertheless, speaking of real quick, speaking of in a twinkling of an eye, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? On earth. This is going to, this passage talks to us about while we're waiting for Jesus to return, how do we live by faith? What does that mean? While we're waiting, while we're in the midst of the not yet already, we're in the, we're in the midst of it, in the wave of not yet but already truths. So, what do we do in the meantime? Now, Jesus gives a couple words here, okay? He gives us a couple words in verse number one. It's interesting. This is a parable where, the, where Luke, the author, tells us exactly what we're supposed to get from this. So Luke chapter one, it says this. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Now, let me just say a word about prayer. Because there is lots of misunderstanding about prayer that you, could, you can come to a wrong misunderstanding about prayer from this parable. Warning, warning, there is a wrong understanding about prayer that you can draw from this parable. So what is prayer? What is the big deal with prayer? You know, prayer is one of those words, it's so easy to talk about, right? Do you know, I mean, give give me a time tomorrow... I could go play around the golf and walk in with no notice and preach a sermon on prayer. So could you. I mean, it is so easy to talk about prayer. If we misunderstand what it is. Prayer is not me telling God what to do. Prayer is not me complaining to God about what he's done in my life. Prayer is not me suggesting to the Lord how he can come along and help me do what I'm going to do anyway. That's not prayer. Prayer is about intimacy with God. That's what it is. Prayer is about intimacy with God. If I told you that my wife and I are very close, we're intimate, we have this great relationship, you say, oh, tell me what that means. And I said to you, well, what happens is I get up in the morning, 6.30, and I say, hey, Nancy, come here, come here, come here. Okay, so I need you to do. I need you to go in there and make breakfast for me, then go get me some coffee, okay? Do that. Take the kids to school, and then once you're at school, I want you to do this and this and this. Give her a whole lot. Clean the house, you know, wash my shoes, do all these things. An intimate moment, right? Hope you enjoyed it, babe. Me too. And walked away. Now, is that, do you really think that's what the Lord has in mind? We were to pray without ceasing? Is that, what, is that what Paul had in mind when he 
called for the believers in Colossae to pray for him? Is this what the Lord had in mind in Ephesians 6 when he talked about spiritual warfare, that we have the the vehicle, the, the tool, the weapon of prayer? Is this what he had in mind? God, do this, 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 and this, and if you get some time, you can do this for them. Is that, is that how it... No. God's calling us to intimacy with Him. So when Jesus says that He is teaching them this parable so that they ought always to pray, He's not saying, keep giving me a to-do list. He's saying, I want intimacy with my followers like I designed in the garden. When God would walk with Adam and Eve, And they would talk, and like Moses had in Exodus 33, where it says that Moses talked to God face-to-face like a man talks with a friend. Yeah. That's intimacy. And along with that, we're also told not to lose heart. Not to lose heart. Now, obviously, that's a metaphor, okay? And it means to not give up. This, this expression is, is, is through Scripture in a couple different places. I think it's the reference there. You can look at it. You should read, you should read the 2 Corinthians 4 passage. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's great. Paul starts with don't lose heart. He ends with don't lose heart. And there's 16 verses and tells us what that looks like in between. But I want to look at this woman today because it's what Jesus taught and, and understand some things about this parable. So let's look at Jesus' parable. It's the parable of the unjust judge and the desperate widow. And it's very short There's a certain city, there's a judge. This guy didn't fear God or man. Didn't fear God, didn't respect man. There's a widow in a city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while, he refused. But, afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, Jesus made up this story. This is not a real story. It's a parable. Jesus made this up on the spot to make a point. This city doesn't really exist. This judge never existed. This woman didn't really exist. He made it up to make a point. One point, and we need to get it. There's this judge here, okay? Now, it says he does not fear God. What that means is God's concern for him doesn't matter. He doesn't respect man. That means man's concern for him doesn't matter. What that means is this guy is driven by one thing, his selfish motive. That's all that matters to him, what he wants. That's what this judge, that's what's true of this judge. You need to realize this is the exact opposite of the judges that God had set in place for the nation of Israel. God had established that there would be judges who would be experts of the law and experts of people. And they would, hear, they would hear cases from people. This is not quite like our system today. There's not, you know, a, a jury, and a prosecuting attorney, a defense attorney, and a judge in a row. That's not what it looks like. It looks like a guy, a couple guys, who are experts of the law. And you come to them and say, we have this dispute over this land. I said I would pay this, and they want this, and we don't know what to do now. And they, their, their call, this judge, was to take God's wisdom and their wisdom, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of man, and give a prudent decision. But not this judge. He didn't care about man, he didn't care about God. Not a bit. He disregarded everything that was right about being a judge he had total disregard for. He even confessed this. I mean, he, this isn't something that's said about him. He says it about himself. I mean, look at it. He says... I don't care, I don't fear God, and I don't respect man. Literally what this not respect man means is this. He had no shame from men 
That's what it literally means. So what that means is, he could do whatever he wanted to, he could do whatever he wanted, and there was no shame. He didn't care about anybody else. There's no shame of men in his life. You get this guy? He's not a good guy. He's an unjust judge. I don't want to seek wisdom or to seek counsel or to seek a decision from this man at all. And before him is this widow. This poor lady is very sad. Number one, she lost her husband. She's a widow. In a culture that there's very little provision for widows. Very little. There's no social security. There's no life insurance. None of that. She's a widow. She lost her husband. And she lost her shirt off her back, apparently. Some adversary has taken something from her, probably taken advantage of her, because in that system, her word meant nothing. Her word meant nothing. And so somebody took advantage of her and and took something from her, and she now has no other recourse but to desperately come to this judge saying, please help me, help me, help me. And what's he say? Get away from me. I don't fear God and I don't respect you. Hit the door. So what's she do? She comes back again. Help me. Help. Get out of here. She comes back again. We don't know how many times this process went on. It went on so long that this judge, who did not respect God and didn't really care about you or me or anybody else, finally said, fine. And he spoke up. Now that's the parable, okay? Let's let's try to understand. And Jesus is going to help us, okay? In verse number 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Now, what is very important for us, now I need you to hear this. This is so important because you've come to the wrong conclusion and that would, be, that would be a sad truth for me. This is a parable of contrast. This is not a parable of comparison. It's a parable of contrast. The judge is called the unrighteous judge. Is God unrighteous Is he, is is this the nature of God? Of course not. Don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, God is the judge, widow is me. Don't go there. This is a parable of contrast. Jesus is saying, this judge, he's unrighteous. He, he, He is not what he should be. God is not like the judge. And folks, we are not like this widow. Think about it. This is a parable of contrast. This widow had no one to speak in her defense. This widow came before a judge that cared not for her. He didn't care about her a bit. He had no regard for her and no regard for her God. This widow had had everything taken from her. We are not the widow in this story. Jesus is not saying to you, listen, listen. Jesus is not saying, if you want something from God, just nag Him. And He'll finally give in. Folks, people are preaching this in a sermon. Maybe this morning. If you just keep on nagging God, just keep on nagging God. Matter of fact, why don't you claim it? Yeah, let's go ahead and claim it. What does that mean? I don't know. But state it and claim it. 
And then God, he'll have to respond because you're getting on his nerves. Listen, this is a parable of contrast. It's not saying, it's not saying repeatedly go to the Lord and say, God, I want a, I don't know, pick your item, okay? Pick your item. I want a new soccer ball, kids. Well, you didn't get it today, so go back tomorrow and say it twice. All right. I want a soccer ball. I want a soccer ball. It didn't work. Tell you what. Take this cross and rub it while you're saying it. Okay? Okay, it didn't work? All right. Rub the cross and put on this special hat. I'm running out of ideas. What I want you to see is the idolatry of that thought. It's idolatry. It is no different than the person in the far reaches of some back corner that's never heard the gospel and gather up little sticks and stones and make this thing and bow down before it because then it will bring rain their way. It's no different. This is not a parable telling us this is how you ought to be. It's a parable saying this is not how you are. This is not how you are. Listen. Listen listen to me. Let me express what we have in Christ. I want to walk through several verses and just, just explain them a little bit because it's explaining that our approach is not like this courtroom. Our approach is one of intimacy with Christ. Listen to this. Jesus says, If you know how to give good gifts, you fathers, if you know how to give good gifts, how much more does the Heavenly Father know how to give you what you need? That's Matthew chapter 7. Romans 8.16 says that we approach God saying, Abba, Father. So Jesus said, Fathers know how, to, know how to bless their children, and you, He is your Father. He is your Daddy, your Papa. This is a, this is a word of affection. So in Hebrews 4.16, because of that truth, I can approach the throne boldly. I can go to the throne boldly of God. I can go to Him in a moment's notice. I don't need a priest to get me there. I don't need to burn anything or kill anything or put on any special whatever. I just go to the throne of Christ boldly. Jesus said, don't babble on in your prayer. Matthew chapter 6. He said, the hypocrites love to do this. They have to stand in the corners and use loud words. Everybody hear them and they say the same thing over and over and over. And he says, as if the repeated sayings will move the hand of God. If I just keep praying this, if I keep just saying this, if I keep just saying this, keep just saying this, then God will finally have to work. No. 1 John 3.22 says that Jesus answers our prayer. He answers them. As a matter of fact, the only thing that stands in the way of God answering our prayer is cherished sin. That's it. Psalm 66, verse 18. I've cherished sin in my heart. God cannot hear my prayer. Instead, there's no doubt, James 1 says... There's no reason to doubt. If we ask God for wisdom, He gives it to us. And we shouldn't doubt. If you doubt, you're like a man tossed by the wave, you know, to and fro and all that. Instead, James says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. You hear this prayer theme through Scripture? Check this out. In Romans 8, verse 26 and 27, it says there that we as believers, at times, we won't even know what to pray. You ever been there? Have you ever been so broken, so beat down by a situation, 
But you close your eyes or you get on your knees or you stand on your feet because none of that matters because it's all described throughout all the Bible, all different positions of prayer. But whatever position you're in, and you go to talk to God and you seriously say, I don't even know what to ask. I don't even know what to ask. Romans 8, 26, 27, 28 says this, that the Spirit of God intercedes for us. God himself, the Holy Spirit, prays for us. I picture you by your bed, weeping over a child or a spouse or a job or whatever. You're crying. And the Spirit of God comes puts his hand on your shoulder and he says, let me pray for you. I've had people do that. I think people come alongside and just put your hand on my shoulder and say, let me pray for you. And they pray and I'm just like, yes, Lord, yes. What they said, yes. Because I didn't know how to pray. The Spirit of God intercedes for us in Ephesians. In Ephesians. In chapter, yeah, chapter 3, verse 20. It says that he is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever hope or imagine. Folks, we are not this desperate widow coming and badgering God and saying, do this for me, do this for me, do this for me, or I'm going to cry. That is not who we are. Instead, go back to the passage. We see in verse 8 and 9, That we are people of belief. We are people of faith. We are followers of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who's coming to establish His kingdom. And we're in the not yet, but already, but we're waiting for Him to come. And look what He says. I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. That means in a twinkling of an eye, now, when He comes, there will be justice. Jesus here is talking again about the second coming, when he comes again. And we're waiting now 2,000 years for him to come. But he's coming. He's coming. And he says here, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he asks us a question. He looks at you and me and he says, when I come, will I find you believing? Will I find you trusting? Will I find faith. As I think about it, this this issue really boils down, I put this on your worship notes, I believe. You know, Jesus, the Son of Man. And and what that that, that term means a lot. I don't have time to talk about it now. You read about Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. You can read about it. It's a great passage. What this means is that He is God. And He came to earth as a man to reconcile men to Himself. And you can look at that truth And you can have three different beliefs. Okay? One, unbelief. Where you just say, I'm on my own. I'm on my own. And that's a sad, sad place to be. And I invite you to Christ. And you may say, this sounds too good to be true. And I would say, you are right. It does sound too good to be true. But the Word of God says... If you put your trust in Christ, you're a child of His. And it is too good to be true. 
Don't stand in unbelief thinking you're on your own. Secondly, you can have misbelief, even from this passage. And it's this, persistent prayer. I love persistent prayer. I don't like the next word I'm going to put on there. Pays off. Persistent prayer pays off. Like God is my errand boy. And if I just tell him enough, he'll finally get off it, you know, whatever you're going to say. I can't even make myself say it. This is our attitude about God. The king of the universe, the son of man. Instead, belief, real belief says, all I need, all I need is found in Christ. That's where we started. That's where we're ending. All I need is found in him. Listen, I'm desperate. Let me back up. I was desperate. I was helpless. I had nothing going my way. Jesus made me his child. And now I'm dependent. Don't get me wrong. I'm dependent upon his grace. But I am his child now. And all I need, he has. What are you running after? What are you running after today? Instead, instead of chasing, why don't you just fall down? And say, Lord, I have all I need. Let me live by faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for this parable that you taught us, Lord. I pray we be people of faith, not lose heart. Lord, that's, where, that's what you said, not to lose heart. I didn't get there, Lord. Remind us of that truth, to not give up. That we don't see what you're doing that you may have a great plan that you're working out. You do have a great plan that you're working out, that we be people of faith to know that, to trust that, and to not give up, but instead to look to you, the author, the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.